I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly impeachment hearing. House Republicans move forward with a plan to remove Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas amid the situation at the U.S. border. Country in chaos. Violent gangs target the citizens of majority Catholic Ecuador. We have the latest. Requiem Mass. A service at the Vatican honors the late Cardinal George Pell. And food for thought. Why Pope Francis says the most dangerous vice might be gluttony. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Gregory of Nyssa. Our top story tonight, members on the House Homeland Security Committee held their first impeachment hearing for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans say that they want the top Biden administration official out over the border crisis. Democrats say the move is nothing more than partisan politics. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the latest. Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. You know, House Republicans have lamblasted Secretary Mayorkas over what they are claimed to be a dereliction of duty as border crossings have reached record highs, laying the groundwork for impeachment proceedings. The attorneys general of Montana, Oklahoma and Missouri shared stories of how the secretary's failed leadership has impacted their states. The most devastating impact of the open border on Montana has been the massive quantities of Mexican cartel fentanyl and methamphetamine. Illegal immigration costs Oklahoma taxpayers more than $750 million each year with a minimal offset return. Secretary Mayorkas swore an oath to faithfully execute the laws of our land. In Missouri, we remove officials who do not do their jobs because we have seen firsthand the catastrophic toll it takes on entire communities. Committee Chair Congressman Mark Green adds, And I briefly want to make it clear to the American people Secretary Mayorkas' refusal to follow the law is sufficient grounds for impeachment, impeachment proceedings. Democrats were quick to come to Mayorkas' defense. Ranking member Benny Thompson accused Republicans of rolling out their impeachment proceedings just in time for campaign season. Like a pre-planned, predetermined political stunt it is. This is not a legitimate impeachment. Republicans want to throw political red meat to their base and keep that campaign cash coming. Others tell me Republicans have a strong case. That I am proud of the work that we did here in the Homeland Security Committee. This was a thorough, concise, well-thought-out uh, investigation. It was one that was done in five phases. Senate Republicans are also eyeing removing the secretary. Last night, Democrats blocked a Republican effort to bring a motion of disapproval to the floor. He's lied to us. I mean, he, you know, I'm on Homeland Security. He said the border's secure. That's a complete lie. He said he had operational control of the border. Complete lie. He lied about Border Patrol and how they were treating people. Uh, and it's a complete dereliction of duty. So clearly he needs to go. If the Homeland uh, Secretary is impeached, it would be an extraordinary rare event. Only one cabinet official has been impeached in American history, and that's been nearly 150 years ago. Tracy? Well, Eric, I understand there are more developments in the House Republicans' investigation into Hunter Biden. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the House uh, Judiciary and Oversight Committees are separately marking up a report today laying out the GOP's case that Hunter Biden could be held in contempt of Congress. Now, Hunter actually showed up at one of the hearings today with his attorney, but he walked out of the middle of it. Hunter's attorney made a statement outside of the hearing telling reporters that Hunter wants to testify, but wants to do so in an open setting publicly. 
Hunter chose a hearing where Republicans could not distort, manipulate, or misuse that testimony. Honor, and then ignoring that invitation, and proving once again that they cared little about the truth and wanted only to, quote, move the needle of political support. Oversight Committee Chair Congressman James Comer said that Hunter doesn't get to dictate how he testifies and when he faces a congressional subpoena and must show up. Both Republican-led committees will likely recommend a full House vote on a contempt resolution. As a matter of fact, Oversight Security Committee voted 23 to 14 to hold Hunter in contempt. A full vote on the House floor is expected sometime next week. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Our Secretary of State Antony Blinken continuing his trip to the Middle East reacts to Yemen's Houthi rebels unleashing a barrage of drones and missiles targeting ships in the Red Sea. He says the ongoing attacks are forcing thousands of commercial ships to reroute and causing consumer prices to go up. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, in Bahrain, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also said there have been hundreds of attacks since November on shipping in the Red Sea, impacting more than 40 countries. He says Iran is aiding and abetting those attacks. The Houthis have been warned before to stop. Discussing the Houthi attacks, Secretary of State Antony Blinken tells reporters. Uh, we had the biggest attack, UAVs, missiles, just yesterday. With ships having to take a different path and pay more for insurance. And that gets translated into higher prices for people for everything from uh, fuel to medicine to food. It's disrupting supply chains. And so it's having a real impact on people around the world. The Houthi attacks forcing the United States and British navies to shoot down the projectiles in a major naval engagement. 18 drones, two cruise missiles, and an anti-ship missile were downed. At the White House, this responds to the latest Houthi attack. U.S. vessels, commercial and military, and dozens of other merchant vessels were transiting in the area of this attack. Had they been hit, innocent lives very well could have been lost. Mike Summers from the American Petroleum Institute is concerned about the conflict. He discussed the dangers, later telling us what's at stake. So the real risk here is there are about 18 million barrels of oil every single day that flow through the Straits of Hormuz in, in the Middle East. If a hot war breaks out in the Middle East, you know those uh, oil supplies are at risk. Um, and there could be a significant price shock if we're not careful. And as Israel pursues its war against the Hamas terrorists, today in Ramallah, Secretary Blinken also met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. We talked as well about uh, the importance of uh, reforming uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority, Palestinian governance, so that it can effectively take responsibility uh, for Gaza. And back to those Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, also said today he called those attacks unlawful, reckless, an escalatory, and he added the U.S. does not seek conflict, but will discuss with its allies the appropriate next steps should the attacks continue. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. All right, now to the Republican race to become the 2024 presidential nominee. Two of the candidates, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, are squaring off tonight in Iowa for a presidential debate hosted by CNN. But the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, is skipping the event like previous debates. Instead, he will appear 
in a town hall on Fox News. And for more, let's bring in Susan Crabtree, political correspondent for Real Clear Politics. Susan, good to be with you as always. All right, well, let's begin with DeSantis and Haley. The debate is part of a lead up to the Iowa caucuses on Monday. Do you think either of them have what it takes to beat Trump? Well, it's certainly coming down a little bit more to the wire. Uh, Trump seemed to have locked it up um, coming into this big debate tonight, the last debate before the Iowa caucus. But there's some intrigue now. Uh, just before uh, your report coming on, Chris Christie, there has been reports that he is going to get out of the race. Now, you might not think that that would have a big impact, but as you know, Haley, Nikki Haley has been surging of late, and any any uh, effect on widening her lane, the more moderate lane of the party, could help her come into a striking distance of Donald Trump, especially in New Hampshire. Um, there's been a number of polls out recently that show her surging in New Hampshire and even um, coming a little bit higher up in New Hampshire. So the, this, you have certainly uh, a recent CNN University of New Hampshire poll that showed the former president slipping to 39% Donald Trump uh, to Haley, while Haley uh, jumped to 32%. So we're watching this closely as DeSantis and Haley get to uh, square off today, and Donald Trump tries to sort of bigfoot the whole event by going on the Fox Town Hall. Yes, yeah, Susan, I want to uh, stick with Haley there just for a second before we go to, to the debate. What do you think is happening in New Hampshire to kind of, you know, bring up her numbers? Well, I think New Hampshire is a more moderate state. Um, it always has been. The Iowa caucus, you have DeSantis, who has really uh, made it basically gone all in for the Iowa caucus. He has gone to 99, all 99 counties, and has been really trying to surge there. But according to the Real Clear Politics, um, national uh, politics average of polls, he's not making as much inroads as even Haley. Uh, you have Haley coming in at 16.6%, while DeSantis has 16.4%, and Trump, you know, really surpassing them all with 52.2%. So, you know, you see Haley uh, trying to make that connection, but, you know, she also had a big gaffe when it came to Iowa recently, and DeSantis has tried to capitalize on that, saying that, you know, Hampshire would correct what the Iowa caucus produced. Uh, she has apologized for that, but certainly that was something heading into this week that DeSantis tried to capitalize on. Still, even though DeSantis has made Iowa, basically uh, has gone all in on Iowa, he, uh, Nikki Haley has spent more money there. Uh, so you have this battle to see if anyone, Nikki Haley, could reach out and become a competitor to Donald Trump. And certainly Chris Christie's uh, exit if, if that, in fact, is true, uh, we're just hearing initial reports, uh, could impact that and give her a little bit of a boost because it would widen that moderate lane that both of them are occupying right now. Susan, less than 30 seconds left, but real quick, quick that is, uh, what would you like to see out of this debate? What are you expecting? Well, you, you've seen sort of, uh, it's been a crowded field for a long time. And so, you know, the two really top to con contenders uh, outside of Donald Trump Giving a chance for them to go head-to-head -head is going to be interesting. 
you have a more conservative approach by Ron DeSantis, a more moderate approach uh, from Nikki Haley. DeSantis last night was on Fox News, and he uh, was taking issue with her on abortion, which plays very well in Ohio and, and Iowa, sorry, and other states, uh, other key conservative states. So New Hampshire, she has taken more moderate stance. Uh, he supports a heartbeat bill, as you know. And so I, I feel like this could be a big point of contention between the two of them. Yeah, well, I'll be tuning in. Susan, thank you so much. I always appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, the mother of former First Lady Melania Trump has died. Amal Janovs was a native of Slovenia. She made sure to have her children baptized in the Catholic Church. She and her husband became U.S. citizens in 2018 and lived in New York. Melania Trump called her mother a strong woman who always carried herself with grace, warmth, and dignity. Amal Janovs was 78 years old. Our gang violence has reached a fever pitch in Ecuador with the president declaring a state of emergency and gunmen attacking a television station. Well, the armed men stormed the set yesterday in the middle of a live newscast. Police also have been targeted for abduction and a curfew is now in effect. Earlier this week, two prominent gang leaders escaped from prison at the TV station. No one was killed. 13 attackers were arrested and are set to be charged with terrorism. We turn now to Jason Poblet, president of the Global Liberty Alliance and an attorney specializing in national security law. Jason, good to have you back on. Uh, first off, give us an update on the situation right now in the majority Catholic country. Is the violence slowing down? Well, President Noboa has called the state of emergency. In fact, that's not unusual, uh, what we're seeing in Ecuador, unfortunately, because this has been a problem for a long time. The prisoners pretty much run the asylum, and they are sandwiched in between, you know, two countries uh, that are, you know, called making cocaine, and Ecuador is a transshipment point. The cartels are involved in the movement of cocaine to Europe, the movement of cocaine to here. And one thing I want to leave your viewers with tonight is remember what's happening in Ecuador may seem far away, but it impacts right here in our country. Everything from illegal immigration, human trafficking, all of this attracts criminals. And President Noboa has a tough job ahead of him. Unfortunately, though, we've seen this before. This is not new. In fact, I was working with two American citizens who were unjustly detained in Ecuador. And this is a commonplace. Prisoners are beheaded. Uh, prisoners are killed alive with guards watching. They broadcast this on the Internet. So something has to be done. We have to help Ecuador through this. We have to work together in the Andean region with Colombia and with um, all colleagues in that region because this is going to continue. This is not the first time. What was different this time, of course, they took over that TV station and that was somehow uh, bringing to a... I think they're challenging the president. Again, I'm making uh, some analysis here. This may not be what they're doing. I think they're challenging the new young president to see if he has what it takes to hold on to that country. I think he does. He's going to deploy the military. He's already done it. Again, they've done this before in Ecuador, except that this time they are escalating. And in fact, they're challenging the president. And I think this president will crack down on this lawlessness, this terrorism, because this is terrorism. Started, Tracy, this problem is rooted back in 2007. And it's worth mentioning here that under the socialist dictatorship of Rafael Correa, they put empowered criminal cartels. They legalized drugs. It, it was this horrible climate of lawlessness where lawyer friends of mine in Ecuador were shocked. It's, they're still living with that problem. It's going to take us some time to rein it in. But again, remember, it impacts us here. 
We have to help Ecuador. We have to condemn the violence and help them bring, bring the perpetrators to account. Yeah, uh, really concerning. Sounds like a mess there. Jason, we have 30 seconds left. Where do you see this going, and how bad do you think things can get if this situation isn't diffused? Well, it can, it, hopefully it will be contained. It has to be contained. Like I mean, like I mentioned, up until 2021, 2022, over 500, uh, you know, Prisoners have been killed amongst themselves inside the prisons. I mean, there are prisons where people walk in with AK-47 grenades. So they got to get control of the prisons. They have to get control of the streets first now, of course. And I'm confident President Obama, with the help of the military and our partners down there, will be able to do that. But remember, it impacts us here, and we have to take this seriously. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much. Always appreciate your insights. Thank you for having us. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including In the Spotlight, part two of our sit-down interview with Florida Governor and GOP presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. And a health update on a prominent Catholic bishop who suffered a heart attack. told you earlier, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be on the debate stage tonight in Iowa. In the second part of our two-part interview, he talked to EWTN's Monsi Alvarado about his stance on pro-life issues, the controversy over gender-affirming care, and how it all has impacted his campaign. You've discussed the life issue, and your stance on that is clear. Obviously, the life issue is very important to you. You're very pro-life, and you've gone back and forth on the best ways to protect life. Is it because it's personal to you? And have you taken losses because you're pro-life? Well, look, part of it is is just who I am and, and believing in a culture of life. But part of it is also understanding the way America was organized. I mean, the Declaration of Independence says that we are endowed not by government, but by God with certain inalienable rights. And the beginning of that is the right to life itself. And, you know, yes, prior to the Dobbs decision, Florida enacted a 15-week uh, where uh, unborn were protected at 15 weeks, which, which, which was fine, but that's like only 4 or 5% um, of, all, of all babies. And so the heartbeat bill that was done um, provides, you know, more robust protections and will end up saving uh, a lot of lives. How that factors in politically, I think on, on issues that are fundamental, you know, why are you in office? Are you in office to put your finger in the wind and try to contort yourself and do a pretzel? Or are you in office to be able to stand up for, for things that, that, that you believe in? And so if you, you, know, you ask me you know, whether a poll was 80% positive or, or 80% negative, um, you know, you know, if you have an unborn with a beating heart uh, that you can see on the sonogram, if you ask me, like, is that a separate life? Like, I can't just take a poll on that and try to say no, like, le- like it is. And so we have responsibility to do it. But I think what we've also done in Florida and what doesn't get as much attention is you know, we understand that you know, parents are in a situation now where it is expensive to raise kids. It factors into their, uh, their, their calculation about whether they want to even try to have a family now. So we've done things like all baby items in Florida are tax-free. So when, I, when we came, became governor, I had a two-year-old and a nine-month-old. Our third wasn't even born yet. We signed the permanent uh, dissolution of the tax on all the baby items last year. I came home and I told my wife that, well, at that time, our kids were six, five, and three. And so she just kind of looked at me. She's like, yeah, that's a lot of diapers. Why didn't you do that your first year as governor when our kids were still in diapers? We didn't have Biden inflation then. That was part of the reason why, but we were able to do that. Do you feel like there's pressure from the elites or from the establishment, even within your own party, to 
cave on issues of gender ideology or abortion? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I've had folks say that that they wanted to support me for president financially, but they didn't like the fact that we battled Disney to to fight against the gender ideology. Uh, We actually banned the mutilation surgeries in Florida for minors. I mean, think about it. You're talking about 12, 13, 14-year-old kids doing these life-altering, irreversible procedures. And what happens is as people get older, uh, the dysphoria resolves itself a lot of times. It's like 80, 90% of it, it gets resolved by the time people become adults. And yet they've had these things done to them uh, which, which they can't change. But the elites definitely are all in on it. There's a lot of people that make money off this uh, with the hormone therapy and all this other stuff. And it shouldn't be about that. I mean, think about it. Uh, a 14-year-old would not be able to get a tattoo. Um, a 14-year-old would not be able to sit at a bar and take a shot of whiskey, but yet somehow they could have their private parts taken off. It doesn't make any sense. It's been very, very harmful, and we've taken a strong stand. You're a Harvard-educated lawyer. You were an AUSA, is that yep. correct? So you know your way around a courtroom and around litigation. Do you think that the Supreme Court, now that Dobbs is the law of the land, is going to play the same role in the future of the country? Is it as important? Well, certainly on religious freedom, we are not where we need to be. I mean, this country was founded uh, on the idea that your right to the free exercise of religion is endowed by God um, and cannot be abridged, infringed by the government. Now, that was different from what what was the norm prior to America, where you basically had toleration of religion, which meant elites would set boundaries as to your practice, But if your religion infringed on their agenda, you were expected to bend the knee uh, to them. What we have in modern America is not an establishment of religion, uh, of Christianity or traditional faith. What you have is elites trying to establish a religion of secular humanism, and they want that to govern society. And so people of faith, Coach Kennedy in Washington State, he says a, a prayer at midfield after a high school football game and he loses his job. Now, yes, he goes up to the Supreme Court and he wins, but the fact that that's even a case shows you that religious freedom is very much uh, up for grabs. So I think the, the, the leftist elites in this country, they really want to go back to an era of religious toleration. Thank you so much for your time. We'll be praying for you. Thank you for coming to Florida. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks. And up next on EWTN News Nightly, words of warning. Pope Francis explains why we should be careful about our eating habits, plus a mass remembering the life and legacy of Cardinal George Pell. says last year alone, more than 130 Catholic priests and religious were arrested, kidnapped, or killed. The study from Aid to the Church in E notes there was an increase from last year when it found 124 priests or religious had been targeted. The main offender in 2023 was Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's regime, which held 46 clergy in custody. Well, some good news out of Rome tonight. Bishop David O'Connell of the Diocese of Trenton has been released from the hospital. Five days ago, the 68-year-old, third from the right there in this photo, suffered a heart attack and required surgery. The former president of the Catholic University of America says that he feels lucky to have received medical care so quickly. He also thanked everyone for their support and prayers. So Pope Francis underlies how the sin of gluttony distorts God's gift of our daily bread. Una cattiva relazione col cibo 
ti produce tutte queste malattie. At the weekly talk in the Vatican, the Holy Father said the push for more and more food has done a great deal of harm to the world. He also says that eating disorders often can be linked to the suffering of the soul, adding that for these reasons, gluttony may be the most dangerous vice. Well, finally tonight, one year after his death, Cardinal George Powell was commemorated in Rome with a mass. <laughs> A commemoration of the death of Cardinal George Pell. It was one year ago on January 10th, the Cardinal was called home. Once Australia's highest ranking Catholic cleric, a one-time financial advisor to Pope Francis and a member of most of the Vatican's dicasteries. You're all very welcome here tonight. Cardinal Pell's life and legacy was celebrated at a mass last night in Rome at the Domus Australia Chapel. An agnostic in his homily, Cardinal Mueller remembered Pell as a man of great willingness to sacrifice for good, as well as a pastor who had a real commitment to marriage and family in the spirit of Christ. But Mueller recalled one of the hardest moments of Pell's career, a conviction on child sex abuse charges, spending 404 days in solitary confinement in Australia, only to have his convictions overturned. The persecution suffered by Cardinal Pell is the same persecution of Christians that recurs throughout history in different guises. If you are looking for consolation in the distress of our time and want to assure yourself in Christ's word, do not be afraid, I have overcome the world. Cardinal Pell's impact in Australia is still present today, despite the years he lived in Rome away from his country. Look, I think the impact of Cardinal Pell is very visible in, in Sydney. He was also in Melbourne. But the work above all that we do with young adults, um, he had a man, it was a big man with, with great vision. And uh, the last 20 years in the Archdiocese of Sydney have seen real growth and leadership amongst a number of young Catholics. A year after his death, many of Cardinal Pell's teachings remain. In particular, his legacy left to the church. I think that his legacy needs to be correctly remembered. He, I was going through some of his papers about a week ago and I saw some of his work on St. Cyprian of Carthage and that was very consonant with the Cardinal's view of how we should have debated within the church. We are one Catholic church, we have one faith, we have one pope, one, one, one. We're one people. If we stand together, we're strong. If we're divided, we're weak. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.